my name is Lynn Elliott. Hi, everybody. I am director of the Food Dependency Program at Henry Olaf Counseling Center here in San Francisco. And this is the food frenzy, how to eat sober in recovery. So if that's what you're here for, you're in the right room. But it's not about recipes, so if you're looking for something new to do with tofu, <laughs> I'm not going to tell you anything new to do with tofu. I'm also not going to make you tell me what you're doing with your food right now. There are no guards at the door. You can leave at any moment. This gets to be too much. Hopefully, you're going to get some validation today of what you already know intellectually and what you know intuitively about this problem. I'm going to provide you with some information, hopefully, today, some of it controversial. And I'm also going to give you some resources. I have a bibliography for more reading that you can do so you can find out more about this for yourself and so you can investigate this more thoroughly. And I'm hopefully going to help you examine your own situation today and where you are at with that. And some of that may be uncomfortable, and that's okay. I guess the highest goal I would have is to assist people out of pain. I think we make a lot of judgments about people's recovery. And I really believe that a lot of the depression, a lot of the irritability, a lot of the mental confusion, a lot of the irrational thinking, a lot of the cravings that people experience in recovery are a result of their physiologic condition. And that's what we're going to talk about today. In other words, your situation, your recovery, your serenity, it's still dependent on what chemicals you put in your body. It's just that we've discounted that food is part of that. And we haven't looked at extensively enough how much people can still be toxic. So we talk about people's lack of surrender or willfulness as opposed to surrender. And what we may have is a tremendous ignorance on people's part of what they need to eat and why, what they need to not eat and why, and a lot of stuff about food addiction itself. I think most people know that there are a lot of people who are trying to recover and not making it today. So any treatment program probably can't claim more than 30-40% recovery rates out of treatment, even if people go to AA afterwards and have support systems and really do all the things that they're supposed to do. And all of us have seen people go back out and have seen people die. The longer you've been here, the more people you've seen. There's a place in Minnesota, in Minneapolis, called the Health Recovery Center, which is treating alcoholics and also using a nutritional approach and working with some of the things I'm going to be talking about today. And their three-and-a-half-year study follow-up on people coming out of that program, they have better than an 80% recovery rate. Statistics are that alcoholics die at the same rate whether they get sober or not, and that's horrifying. And I think that's a large result of what people do after they stop drinking that continues the disease. And I'm saying the disease, not other diseases, but I'll get more specific about that. You know, there isn't a person in this room that doesn't know that it takes a concerted effort to get well, and it takes a lot of energy. I want to say something about my bias about this, too, first of all, and that is that I believe that where people get and stay sober is in AA, that I believe that the solution to this problem is a spiritual one. I want to get that real clear, because what I offer here is not some panacea or some quick remedy or a quick fix or this is the answer. I'm talking about information that people need, but there are no easy answers. There is no formula. I just believe that if a person is still toxic, it makes recovery much more difficult. You know, I can't say that if somebody is intoxicated and sitting in AA, meaning they're not getting anything out of the meeting, but they're probably getting less than somebody who's sober in that meeting. Same goes for I wouldn't try and do therapy with a drinking alcoholic, and I think we're sometimes expecting a tremendous amount out of ourselves when we're still under the influence of other chemicals, and I mean food. I believe people deserve the best chance possible, and that means you need the information about your body in particular. And I believe that people in this program don't want to just not drink. I really believe that people want to be sober and in recovery and happy, joyous, and free. And I don't think anybody would be in this room if they didn't want that. 
And I want to say we have a lot to learn. I have many, many, many more questions than I have answers, but I'm going to present today some of my opinions and some of the things that I have learned. The point of this whole thing, the whole purpose in my being here, is that sobriety can be easier and that this is the easier, softer way. I'm going to talk about what's special in terms of nutrition for alcoholics. I'm going to talk about why even with outlining a plan for people, a lot of times people are not able to follow through on that information. I'm going to help identify with you where you are on that continuum. I'm going to look at the steps you need to take to deal with this problem and also to take a look at the resistance that comes up in response to it and hopefully help people start today on a path out of the food frenzy. There's a, a, a matchmaking that I think has been long in the making, too long in the making, and it's between chemical dependency and nutritional medicine. And I'm going to talk about some of the factors that affect people's inability to stop eating, problematic eating, etc., whatever you want to call this right now. What is hypoglycemia? And you hear that bantered around a lot. Milam, who wrote Under the Influence, has a program up in the uh, northwest part of the country, and he studied the alcoholics who went through his treatment program and found that 96% of them were hypoglycemic. I think you can pretty much assume that you're, if you're sitting in a meeting, you're hypoglycemic. So what does that mean? Hypoglycemia means low blood sugar, but it's almost a misnomer. It's more hyperinsulinism. What happens is you assault your body with sugar or something with a lot of high carbohydrates in it, and then your adrenaline pumps out into your system and your insulin pumps out into your system. Your adrenal glands go into attack, okay, to bring that blood sugar down. And what happens is that that then brings it down too far when somebody's hypoglycemic, and it goes below the level that you need. We all need a certain amount of sugar in the form of glucose circulating in our blood to be able to function. About half of that is used by our brain to be able to think, to be able to function, just to energize, to do anything in our lives. I mean, sleep, breathe, all of it. If you use the analogy of an engine, if you put some kind of fuel in a, in a say, gasoline-powered engine and you only sporadically give it fuel and it runs out, it's going to sputter and fade and not work. And if you're getting to the middle of the morning and you're sputtering and fading and you can't work, it's probably your hypoglycemia and it probably has to do with you are not maintaining a steady level of glucose in your bloodstream so that you can operate on that. And I guess, you know, one of the ways to describe it is that feeling when, you know, everything in your life is going well and you hit the middle of the afternoon, you can't think, you want to cry, you hate your life, you would like to kill yourself, and you would like to smash somebody in the face before you do. <laughs> That's hypoglycemia from a non-medical description. <laughs> There's a biochemist in the room, I apologize. I'm doing this the way I understand it. Also, because low blood sugar releases adrenaline out into your system, what you're doing is you're constantly stressing your body. You're constantly putting your body through uh, a panic reaction. There are four things that alter people's blood sugar faster than anything else. They are alcohol, sugar, nicotine, and caffeine. So what happens? <laughs> People get sober and they go to meetings and they pick up coffee and cigarettes and cookies and they're off and running. And I want to tell you it's for a good reason that people do that. It is our natural instinct to try and find some kind of homeostasis, to find some kind of balance, to try and get our bodies to work the way they're supposed to. It is not a moral problem that people do that. It has to do with addictive disease. And that's why I want to give people this information so that we don't keep punishing ourselves for this happening. It's as if the computer is trying to find some way to work it out with all these chemicals. And what I'm suggesting to you, that adding sugar, caffeine, and nicotine is probably not working here. You probably wouldn't be here today. The second factor that we consider physiologically with people is that there is indeed such a thing as food allergy, an allergy to substances other than pollen. 
Usually when people think of allergies, they think of people break out in hives from strawberries or lobster, or they think of you inhale the pollen in the air and you get asthma or hay fever and you have that kind of reaction. The other kind of allergy that I'm talking about is where you feel better if you eat, okay? And the reason that that happens is because you have probably been taking small amounts of that substance in for years at a time. You begin to go into withdrawal, you feel badly when you do, and you want to eat to stop the withdrawal symptoms. It is once again the body is saying there is something going on here and I want this to stop. The chief allergens in this country, I, I can't give you the list of 20 off the top of my head, but are things like dairy, wheat, soy, corn, eggs, things that are included in almost every manufactured kind of food that we eat. In other words, we're taking those things in on a daily basis every day. If you want to think about allergy in terms of the alcohol, people have been doing look at the, looking at this since the 50s, that alcoholics are allergic many times to the food components that make up the alcohol they drink. In other words, vodka drinkers are often allergic to potatoes, that a lot of people are allergic to corn, that a lot of people are allergic to sugar, a lot of people are allergic to yeast and barley and malt and all the things that went into the alcohol that they drank. The big book even talks about this as being a physical allergy. There are several different ways that you can identify the possibility of an allergy, and you're not going to be able to do a, a diagnosis just on the amount of simple information that I'm giving you today, but are there certain foods that you eat when you eat them you feel hungrier? Are there certain foods that are the only thing that will satisfy your hunger at a particular time? In other words, nothing else is going to do it but fill in the blank. You've all got one in your head. You just it rolled across the screen right now. And it's that one food. It's a food oftentimes that you eat on a daily basis and you don't see it as problematic food. I'm not just talking about sugar right now. I'm talking about other kinds of foods that may be setting off people's uncontrollable eating, the inability to stop eating with a physiologic base. Oftentimes, and I hate to say this because this is, of course, how it is with alcohol, it is oftentimes people's favorite foods. You know, people are usually not reticent to give up uh, broccoli and uh, chicken, you know. I mean, it's, it's oftentimes the things that you're eating on a daily basis that if I talk to somebody and I say, I think you may have an allergy to dairy, and there's a panicked look in their eye. That's probably an allergy, and the allergy has become an addiction. Just as I know, I remember now what I was going to say. Just as a lot of times in people's AA stories, you'll hear them talk about the first time they drank, they got sick, they vomited, it made them horribly ill, and they continued to drink. And that's oftentimes what we've done with the food, and the first ingestion of that food was so many years ago, who even remembers what your first reaction to it was? And you've been eating it on a daily basis since then, and you have all of the defining factors for what an addiction is. It's initially a stimulant for people. You've developed increased tolerance. You have irritability and other withdrawal symptoms when you don't have it, and a craving as a result of not having it. The third factor is sugar. And sugar was, I mean, people began talking about sugar as a problem in Sugar Blues, which was written decades ago. In the 1920s, the per capita consumption in this country of sugar was 25 pounds. It is now 127 pounds per capita which is a more than a 500% increase in the amount of sugar we ingest. That is more than a teaspoon an hour. Okay? So we are talking about a drug. We're talking about a drug that elevates the blood sugar, gives people a sugar rush, a sugar high. You've heard people talk about that. I run an adolescent group. The kids call it crank. I've heard people describe it in NA meetings as poor man's heroin. I've certainly seen people, you know, ha have a hard time and decide they were going to go home and drink payroll syrup, you know, the immediate fix. And there are people in this room, I'm sure, who are doing outrageous things with food. You think you're alone, and I want to tell you that there are other people who've done it too and are in recovery. There is a crash that follows that sugar high. And that's where you get the headaches, the mood swings, the anxiety, the irritability, the fatigue, the inability to think clearly. And you think you're nuts, you think you're not working the steps hard enough, you think you're not doing enough. There is absolutely no nutritional value in sugar. 
And I mean by sugar, I mean all sugars. I mean extra small toast, corn syrup, molasses, even honey. Honey is sugar that has been through the little bee's body. It is still sugar. <laughs> Thinking it is not sugar is denial, okay? <laughs> That's it. Honey is sugar, okay? <laughs> the other thing I want to say, too, is that when I talk about sugar, I probably should be more general and say white flour as well. I'm talking about pasta. I'm talking about bread. I know people are cringing. Nobody's run out the door yet. It's incredible. This is a brave group. And the reason for that, I'll tell you, is that sugar breaks down into a glucose molecule and a fructose molecule. Starch, which is in potatoes and grains and bread and pasta and all that, breaks down into two glucose molecules, which means that a lot of times people say, I'm not into sugar. But what they're doing is they're eating pasta and an entire loaf of French bread for supper, and that's going into their bloodstream even faster than sugar does. Okay? Number one, if you're eating a lot of refined carbohydrates, you are not getting what your body needs nutritionally, obviously. You're taking up the calories you eat in food that has no nutrients at all. The second thing that sugar does is it sucks out of your body what you've got. In other words, whatever you are getting from your food, whatever your body's storing in terms of vitamins and minerals and nutrients, that sugar is sapping. It's just pulling it right out. It robs the B vitamins, which have to do with energy, and healing your adrenals, your brain, your nervous system. It also raises the LDLs, which are the bad cholesterol. And so really they're finding that much more than fat intake, sugar intake has a lot more to do with cholesterol in people's blood. And I think that's real interesting for people to know. But basically what we're doing is creating tremendous malnutrition. And those of us who are looking at ourselves as healthier than we've ever been, we're continuing a problem and creating more of a problem. By refined, I mean in general anything, it's basically anything white. It's anything where they've taken all the food value out of it. Anywhere, anytime they've, they've taken the husk off the grain, white rice. And generally, you can say things white because potatoes are a lot of times a problem for people. And when you buy whole grain bread, you have to really know what you're doing because a lot of it, they've got some brown stuff in the bread, and it's basically white bread with brown stuff in it, you know. Um, whole grain is, you know, a pretty loose term out there. But refined means that they've processed it so much that whatever food value was in that food to begin with, there isn't any left. <laughs> okay? And, you know, and, and that's what's happening in this country. I mean, that's the direction we're moving. When you move from 25 pounds of sugar to 127 pounds of sugar, you know that what's it's, that they know, whoever they is out there, that we're addicted and it's making money. You know, it's, it's beneficial in this country to be producing fast foods. They sell, people need them, people may be getting them on an hourly basis. Fourth thing is that because of what we've done to our bodies with alcohol, sugar, nicotine, and caffeine, our immune systems are really down. Our endocrine systems are oftentimes out of balance, damaged, weakened. Just using the example of hypoglycemia, when your adrenals are assaulted by a lot of sugar or refined carbohydrates, you shoot out adrenaline, you shoot out insulin, your blood sugar drops, your body's in a stress reaction. That is hard for your immune system to take, and it's been under that assault for years. Take a look at how many years you drank, how many years you've eaten sugar, and not much else, that kind of thing. And we have to begin to look at rebuilding, and there's no way with our recognition of AIDS at this point in the culture where we can't say we have to do whatever we can to build healthy bodies and healthy immune systems. The fifth thing is systemic Canada albicans, which people may have heard of and may not have heard of. It's a yeast infection that some people seem to have systemically, in other words, through their whole body. And what that does is a number of things. There's a list of symptoms as long as your arm, but a lot of times people who've been trying to treat other things find out that they have Canada, and that's at the root of the problem. And one of the things that Canada does is it makes people crave sugar, bread, and alcohol. 
and we're finding a lot of alcoholics have Canada. And that may be one of the physiologic factors that causes people to eat when they don't want to eat no matter what. It's horrendously powerful. Some of the predisposing factors are people who have taken a lot of treatment uh, with antibiotics. If you had a lot of infections when you were a kid and have taken a lot of antibiotics. Women who have been pregnant, people who have been on cortisone and prednisone. A lot of times one of the symptoms is um, being real aggravated by smoke or perfume around you in the atmosphere. And just seeing symptoms that can be, you know, kind of the range of things you see with, with also, a lot of the symptoms overlap with uh, food allergy and hypoglycemia. And all of these things seem to potentiate each other, which means sometimes if you have two or three of them going on at the same time, they're kind of stacked on top of each other. And you have to begin to pull out those blocks and figure out what's going on. The other thing that we're seeing more and more of, I'm going to get to the solutions. I'm talking about the problem now, okay? Everybody's sinking lower and lower. <laughs> There's a flip side to this. I didn't just come here with, you know, a death knoll. The other thing that we're seeing more and more in people is chemical um, sensitivities, that people are environmentally ill, which means they're reacting to things in their environment that they are surrounded by, particularly you know, hydrocarbons, petrochemicals, the chemicals in our environment we were not designed to be able to handle. People who get immediately depressed after they put gasoline in their car but maybe have not connected that yet and have not watched that maybe when they're out in traffic they have more trouble or they put a new rug in their house and they're suddenly terribly depressed because of the formaldehyde and the carbon. Things like that. Beginning to uncover these things is really essential. I also think, and this is kind of my own theory, borne out by some experience in observing other people, is that there seem to be people who are pretty much carbohydrate intolerant. In other words, they don't do very well even with whole grains, with nuts, with beans, with things like that. Trying to be macrobiotic is a great idea, but it doesn't work. And I don't know what all that is yet. We're beginning to, to have people talk about maybe there are some of us who have not evolved to be able to handle the later developed foods. In other words, we were hunters and gatherers and we, we ate meat and vegetables and fruit and maybe there's some of us that's what we're designed to eat and that's all that works for us. That there is some metabolic reason why we don't handle this as well as other people do. The, the radical idea I have to present today is that food addiction, that food dependency, is chemical dependency. And that this is not just a behavioral addiction. You know, that we don't talk about that alcohol and drugs being the real stuff, and then with food, you should somehow be able to manage that. In this country, we have such an aversion to fat. We have such an aversion to people who are out of control, especially people who are alcoholics and addicts really hate people who are out of control. <laughs> we find them disgusting. We make a lot of judgments about it. And you know, it's becoming chic to be clean and sober. It is becoming chic. Somebody has got a pin on up here that says, sober is in. You know? I mean, you can go to any place you want now and order a Perrier and nobody looks at you like you're insane. And that's not true yet with really taking care of your food. Then you're being compulsive and you're being strange and you're being bizarre and you've taken this whole addiction thing a little far, don't you think? <laughs> and you start trying to pay attention to this and the people that you most get support for, your sobriety and your abstinence from drugs, go, oh, come on. Remember what they eat when they say that. We say it's a disease, but we treat it psychologically in this country. We talk about the underlying pathology. We talk about body image. It's basically where alcoholism treatment was at in the 30s, is, is my particular bias about all of this. And I believe you can't treat a drinking drunk. I think that everybody has food issues. Everybody has eating issues. Everybody has issues with their family around food. 
everybody. Everybody on the face of the planet. Everybody's had food as reward and punishment. Everybody's had food as nurturance and love. Everybody has, has had some sort of cultural connection in their family that, that was the, the food was the vehicle. Everyone has used food to socialize, to connect, to be able to participate. Most people have used it as a sort of last resort friend, best friend, best buddy, most dependable thing when everybody else ran out on you that Hagen does was still there. <laughs> you know, and I think you know, it's like I wish I wish I could get Bill Wilson back to talk about it, you know, because what you hear is, you know, the, the party line sometimes is that the big book says it's okay to eat sugar. Living Sober says it's okay to eat sugar. Well, if that, if we paid attention to what was true in the 30s, there would still be a lot of people dying of infections because they refused to use antibiotics. Bill Wilson, before he died, was beginning to uh, investigate a nutritional approach to, to recovery and alcoholism and was investigating vitamins and taking niacin and starting to wonder if the two-year depression he had. This is written up, and I think it's called The Yellow Paper, which was never published but was kind of circulated underground about his problems with sugar and wondering if that wasn't connected to the severe depression that he had. I mean, I wish you were here to talk about it. I maybe was here. I don't know, but I think we have to to take a look at what that means. I don't think anybody in this room would say to somebody in their first year of recovery, "Look, it's hard enough giving up the alcohol. If you want to go ahead and take that Valium, just take the Valium for the first year and then worry about it." Nobody would say that. And I'm here to say that I have certainly seen sugar and food be as powerful in anybody's life as I have seen Valium be. And that I really, really believe that we are cheating people out of recovery by saying to them, it's okay, keep it up. It's like telling somebody to keep smoking reefer and it's going to be okay. I don't believe that, and I don't believe that with food. I think there are some people who can't afford to wait. I think there were a lot of people who have waited, and it took them five years before they got ready to deal with their food. I also believe that we can raise the bottom for people. I don't believe everybody has to do it the hardest way possible to get it. I believe that we can use other people's experience. I'm going to talk about a disease. I'm going to talk about this disease from as many aspects as I can because you're going to fight that this is a disease. There's so much acculturation around this not being a disease that I'm going to define it in eight different ways. And if there's a way through to your consciousness, I hope I get there. This is a physical addiction and a psychological obsession. It is primary, which means it is not secondary to some other process. In other words, this is the problem. Not if it's a symptom of some psychiatric problem you have. It is progressive. In other words, there are symptoms that you can describe as people go along in the progression of the disease. It is chronic, which means that it's not acute like a cold. It'll go away. If you've got it, it ain't going away. I'm sorry, that's the bad news. It is relapsable, which means that people slip, and people slip a lot with food. It's also terminal. I have seen people die of this disease, and not just people dying of obesity, although that happens. There are people in AA dying of their bulimia, dying of their anorexia. There are people who you would never know have a problem with food. They don't look like a compulsive overeater. As far as I'm concerned, the disease is eating accompanied by guilt. If you have guilt when you eat, you probably have this problem. And that's making more people wiggle than we're even wiggling before. <laughs> I like Father Martin's description of a definition for alcoholism, and that is, if it causes problems, it is the problem. And I think that's true with the food, too. The disease is not body size, which is a symptom. Obesity is a symptom of compulsive overeating, just as cirrhosis is a symptom of alcoholism. It is not the disease. There are normal people in this program who are just as obsessed with food, just as out of control, and just as emotionally distraught, and are unable to talk about it because they don't look like they have a problem. Addiction is, and I said this before, increased tolerance, withdrawal symptoms, and then the cravings. But to define it 
in terms of four points along the scale, and that is that addictive disease is defined, number one, by loss of control, and that is an inability to refuse food. And maybe you can some of the time, but some of the time you can't stop, you can't refuse. Somebody was telling me at the beginning of this that, that it's just like when they have a sale on gin at the store. If they have a sale on ice cream at Safeway, he's bought the ice cream. If he's got it in the house, he finishes it. He doesn't eat one bowl, he finishes the curtain. So he doesn't buy it except when they've got a sale on it, you know? Well, that's how a lot of people used to buy their gin, too, you know? Inability to limit use. There may be binge patterns or there may be maintenance eating. Some people say, well, I don't binge. No, they eat every 15 minutes. Who needs to binge? <laughs> and there are people who only binge occasionally, but when they do, what are the consequences? What are the results? It's the same. Every moment you can use the analogy of your alcoholism and your drug dependence, use it. There are almost no differences, and I'll get to some of what they are, but there are very few. Lots of control, as far as I'm concerned, are unsuccessful diets. And sometimes it's inability to stop the control. Some people, I believe, start trying to control their eating either by starving themselves, by vomiting, by using laxatives, whatever, and they're unable to stop that, and that is part of this disease as well. They're not able to stop the vomiting or the laxative abuse or the Ipecac or whatever it is. There's drug compulsion, which means persistent or episodic once in a while, cravings or compulsions. Compulsive use despite absence of euphoria. In other words, you're still using the food, but it's not working anymore. It's not working out. It's not helping. It doesn't make you feel better. You're feeling worse. There's a fear of being without the food or a fear of keeping it in the house. People carrying it everywhere. You got it in your purse. You got it in your car. You got it every place you can think of. Four people just looked at their purse. I want you to know that. I <laughs> There's compulsion to use other drugs, especially alcohol, because alcohol is sugar in its fastest form. It goes into your bloodstream from the moment it hits your mouth. It's already going into your bloodstream. And we wonder why so many people go out and get loaded. We wonder why so many people go out and get drunk. Okay, so we have lots of control, drug compulsion. Third is continued use despite adverse consequences. In other words, you're watching it happen. You're watching it happen. You're seeing what's happening medically. Maybe you're getting overweight. You've got problems with your blood pressure. Um, people are vomiting. Their throats are bleeding. Um, their electrolytes are out of balance. They're irritable. They're anxious. They're suicidal. And they continue to use. Socially, it may be affecting them financially. I mean, people can spend a horrendous amount of money on food a day. It can be more expensive than the alcohol and drugs ever were, especially if somebody was partially supplying some of your alcohol and drugs. Usually people are buying their own food. It certainly can affect relationships. It becomes a real battleground around the food. I've seen it affect people legally. There's a lot of shoplifting with food. And it certainly affects people's ability to work. And the fourth factor is that there's denial. And I guess that's why I'm so touched by so many people being here today, that however much denial you have, you brought it with you today to deal with it. And I really believe that the healthy part of us always wins. But we deny that the problem exists. We deny the seriousness of the adverse consequences. In other words, it's not that bad yet, or it's not as bad as hoo-hoo over there, you know. You know, I mean, you can always find somebody who weighs 400 pounds. There was always somebody worse. There was always somebody who drank worse, too. There was always somebody who drank worse. So how bad does it have to get, have to get is the question. And people get defensive in response to questions. You know, go to an AA meeting where somebody's crying and upset in the meeting, where everybody else is asking them, are they working the steps? Have they got a sponsor? How many of the meetings are they going to? Walk up and ask them how, how much sugar they're eating and see their face. Okay. If you all have a piece of paper, I'm going to ask you some questions. This is not for me. This is for you. Nobody else ever asked to see this. This is for your own information. Question number one. <laughs> That's one of the best questions I've ever had. The question was, uh, how many are there? For those of us uh, living a day at a time. 
I got it. I understand. From my heart, I understand. Do you eat when you're not hungry? Do you eat when you're not hungry? You will probably go deaf on about half of these questions. I'll repeat them all. Do you go on eating binges for no apparent reason? In other words, it's not because you broke up. It's not because you wrecked your car. Got it. Three. Do you have feelings or guilt of guilt or remorse after overeating or eating? Do you give too much time and thought to food? Four was. Do you give too much time and thought to food? Yeah. Three is. Do you have feelings of guilt and remorse after eating? Five. Do you look forward with pleasure and anticipation to the moments when you can eat alone? Do you look forward with pleasure and anticipation to the moments when you can eat alone? Do you plan these secret binges ahead of time? <laughs> No, we're not going to lock the door. Remember, you're always in the right place at the right time. Do you eat sensibly before others and make up for it alone? People are wanting me to quit.
there are a lot of secret bulimics in the program, and I, you know, I always talk about this because I had a friend who was bulimic, who was thin and beautiful and successful, and she went out and drank and then killed herself because her eating was never addressed. And I always, always, always take this seriously, and it's hard to sometimes. But the disease is the compulsion and the obsession. It is not the symptoms. And everyone deserves to be free from the grip of any addiction around their neck. I heard somebody describe denial as sincere delusion the other day, and I thought that was really good. Sincere delusion. Because we have denial about what we eat, and of course we lie. It's part of this disease that we lie. It is not because we are liars, bad people, immoral, etc. It is because we have an addictive disease that we lie. We have a lot of denial about what our bodies look like, of the connection between what we put in our bodies and what our bodies look like. That there's a corollary there is sometimes amazing information for people. There's individual denial. Certainly our families have denial. You know, probably half the people in the room have a mother who say, you've got to lose weight, have a piece of cake. <laughs> With no breath in between. There's cultural denial around this. We're humiliated about this disease. We have a difficult time taking it seriously. We still see it as funny. And we do a lot of rationalizing in this culture because of hopelessness. We give up on it. So what we say is, let's do groups for fat women to get them to love themselves as they are. I think that's horrible. I think we all need to love ourselves where we are. But I think because of giving up on this disease is not the point at which you start from. I think it's the old denial, I'm fine, I'm fine, and I'm fine, and I continue to say I'm fine so hard that I don't have to feel what's really going on with the food in me. You know, we say, oh, well, it's Madison Avenue that's corrupting us, and, you know, it's like I can't be carried nation with the alcohol. I can't change the alcohol distillers out there. What I can do is work on this. It's still okay to walk down the street with cookies in your hand, and nobody sees that as a problem. You know, and, and for a, a lot of people it is. I'm going to say real briefly that, that I believe compulsive overeating, bulimia, and anorexia are parts of one disease, not three different diseases. That's just my opinion. You won't find that in the literature. It just seems to be when you go back in anybody's history, they have a lot of those components. If you go back far enough. A lot of times, if you look at somebody's childhood, they were fat as a child, then they, then they hit adolescence, and they got real food conscious, and they were kind of anorexic for a while. Then they started eating again, and they became fat, and then they started vomiting to control it. Shifts may occur at some crisis point in the family when there's a birth of a child, different points. But this is a disease where you didn't used to have it. If you have this disease, you always have it. Weight may motivate treatment for people, and there's certainly special issues with obesity and with anorexia and with bulimia, but they all need treatment as eating addiction, as food addiction. Okay, why do people end up duly addicted? You know, everybody's sitting in this room going, oh, God, not again. Okay, we talk about replacement or cross-addiction. And some of the reasons for that is it looks as if the same neuroreceptors in the brain receive heroin, receive sugar. It's, we're talking about the same neurological pathways. Also, you know, we've talked about the hypoglycemia and that it alters people's physically. Sugar is a, is a great substitute for alcohol. So we have that whole replacement phenomena. The other thing that we have is that both of these, all of these things basically increase endorphins. You know, and the research looks like maybe uh, alcoholics and addicts don't produce the kind of endorphins that other people do on the natch. So we're trying to, uh, you know, we're trying to come up. We're trying to come up to normal. And that, once again, we've found something that we think is going to do it, only it wears out. It doesn't work anymore. Second is that a lot of us grew up in families that ate and drank at each other. Dysfunctional families where there wasn't a lot of consciousness about what was appropriate to eat. There wasn't a lot of caretaking from parents who were addicted themselves, so nobody ever really learned what was good for them nutritionally. And they ate a lot of junk. And that's not true in everybody's family, but that would be a high percentage, I would bet. 
that there's a lot of sugar. There's a program in Georgia that treats eating disorders, the FACE program, an outpatient program, and they, of their clients who are compulsive overeaters, 98% have an alcoholic parent or an alcoholic grandparent. I don't think we're talking about a different family disease. I think we're talking about the other part of the family disease. I used to see this when I worked at the VA hospital, and I was working mostly with uh, men, alcoholics, and addicts, and their spouses would come in, and they were all obese or anorexic that we're talking about this goes on in families and that this looks to be hereditary and this looks to be like the alcoholism. You know, it also I mean, has issues in family like things like control. There's obviously all kinds of sexual stuff tied up in food and control of sexuality, all of that. Acting out behavior around the food. There's, as a drug, it's the most readily available. Absolutely the most readily available. When we were little bitty kids, and things got nutsy at home. There was always a cookie jar before there was Valium on the shelf or before there was a liquor cabinet to get into. And I think for a lot of people, what we're really talking about is that we're getting down to the mother addiction. We're talking about the addiction that started before the alcohol, that before the drugs, and maybe predisposed us to both of those. And I think what's hard about this is that we haven't considered that, that a lot of times people say, well, I picked up a substitute, and it may not be a substitute. It may be that we're going back to the primary addiction. Okay, similarities and differences. This is chemical dependency. That's a similarity. And that the solution is abstinence is also the same. That diets don't work or nobody would be in this room. There wouldn't be anybody who showed up for this workshop. There are particular foods that set you off. They're going to set you off if you do without them for six months and then you eat them again. There are probably people in this room that have done without sugar for periods of time and ended up back at the gate again. It's not about weight loss or gain, but it's about the insanity and the compulsion and the disruption of life, which is what any addiction is about, whether it's gambling or sexual addiction or relationships or on and on and on. As I said before, it's primary, chronic, progressive, relapsable, terminal, and treatable. And it's also a drug in the sense that it's sedative for people and it's stimulant for people. It serves both functions a lot of times. The difference is it is not just one surrender. It is multiple surrenders, and that scares people to death. It is not the static kind of thing that if I never have to take another drink, it's not true with food. There's a saying in the program that a lot of you have heard already probably that in AA you put the tiger in the cage. In OA what you do, in Overeaters Anonymous what you do is you take the tiger out of the cage and take it for a walk three times a day. It is different in that sense. I think it's also different in that a lot of times for people the last is the hardest. All the anger that we didn't get out about having to get clean and sober comes out around food. All that why me and how come and this isn't fair and that's true. It's not. It's real hard for people to buy the disease concept with this one because they don't want it. Real hard. And also we've continually heard, you know, if you sort of get these factors, you know, if you deal with your relationship with your mother, then somehow the food will magically go away. Well, it doesn't work that way for drugs and alcohol, and it doesn't work that way for chocolate chip cookies either. I think for people, too, it's also the level of humiliation around this is even greater than it is around alcohol. There's something glamorous and racy about being an alcoholic and an addict and having great stories to tell about it. Throwing up four times a day in a, in a gas station washroom, you know, eating out of garbage cans, the kind of things that people progress to, nobody wants to talk about. People don't want to talk about the fact that they abuse their kids on sugar, that here they are clean and sober and they're still beating the shit out of their kids because they're still toxic, they're still sick. People hate OA. People hate OA. They hate OA. Well, I'm going to talk about that a little bit, too. One of the things I want to say about it is that AA is 51 years old, OA is 26 years old. Okay, so we're, we're, we're a generation behind in terms of eating disorders, at least a generation behind. 
The other thing I, I think is that a real base of this that makes it different is that this addiction started earlier for people, and I think some intuitive part of people is scared about dealing with that early stuff. The early memories that come up when people start eating, I think, scare them. And what's true is that this program and the steps of this program and the people in this program can get you through anything, including whatever comes up a day at a time when you stop eating. Okay, what to do? Number one, anybody who's in this program should be eliminating sugar, white flour, and caffeine without a doubt. Like coffee, caffeine. That brown stuff, yes. Soda pop. People may need to investigate other things physiologically if they're having trouble. Things like other food allergies that may be setting them off. Things like Canada. They may need to see a physician to do that. Some people in this program I have seen are not able to eat grains and beans and nuts and, and stay abstinent. They end up binging on. Some people are. I just want to plant that seed with you that there, I think that for some people, the way to eat is to eat protein, vegetables, and fruit in moderate amounts. And that a lot of people seem to need to weigh and measure their food as well. And of course, there's tremendous resistance to that. Tremendous resistance to that. You need to, as much as you can, eat whole foods. In other words, if it's been processed, you probably don't want it. A lot of um, things that are written about eating for alcoholics is to eat high grains and a lot of beans and nuts and that kind of thing. And people may have to try that and see if that works. If it doesn't, they may need to eat higher protein and lower carbohydrates. One of the things I want to warn you about, too, is that sugar comes in a lot of forms. And if you give up sugar and drink three gallons of fruit juice, eight pounds of dried fruit, and um, potatoes all day long, you'll probably still feel shitty. You need to watch the amount of time between meals. That's not just something weird that your mother told you, you know, that you should eat three meals. It really is true that an alcoholic's body needs fuel to run on that we're much more susceptible because of the hypoglycemia to all kinds of swings in our blood sugar level and therefore in our moods. And that means people really do need to eat three times a day. Okay, so now you have to go and you have to go grocery shopping, you have to buy food, you have to figure out where you're going to eat, and you can't, you can't just stop jack-in-the-box. What I want to say to you is the anger and the grief that comes up around this is real and it has to be addressed. And I believe that's why people have to go to Overeaters Anonymous if they're not able to do this by themselves. And I doubt there are very many people who can do that this by themselves or you probably wouldn't be in this room. Now, I may be wrong. I may be making an assumption that's way off base. But the anger and the rage around having to do this has to be addressed because if you just try and squash it, it will come back and you will eat again. And if you're going to do it, you might as well do it all the way. There's a lot of grief around this. There is a tremendous amount of sadness around this. And people need to go through the stages of grieving the loss of what has often been the first comfort they saw. In terms of vitamins and minerals, people need supplementation. A good place to start, Donald Dan in his book recommends a multivitamin, a multimineral, at least two grams of vitamin C, 400 units, two grams. 2,000 milligrams. Okay. What you might try is check out with a physician taking um, buffered vitamin C. A lot of people who have trouble with vitamin C do well with buffered C. And especially in detox, when you're coming off of foods, buffered vitamin C seems to really help people. They've been doing a lot of research with heroin addicts and with alcoholics and, and uh, buffered C assisting detox. The body gets real acidic when you withdraw, when you're in, in detox, and uh, vitamin C helps to um, modulate that as well as did some other things that are real positive. The other thing is an extra B complex. And I have to say, it go to OA. If you need a, a physician, 
You may want to look for a clinical ecologist, somebody who had some information about food allergy and hypoglycemia and environmental illness in Canada and can treat those things. A lot of general physicians out there don't know about or don't believe these things. I mean, most of you have experience with a lot of physicians not having information about alcoholism even. I'm going to go through the rest of this real quickly. I've got about three more minutes. What happens when they hate people go to OBE is they hate it. They hate it. A lot of people's experience of going into AA was that they felt relief when they got there. But some people hated AA when they get there, too. And I think, you know, some of the things that people come up with is, I'll work at AA. I already know the steps. It's a steam program. I'll work at an AA. Okay? My question about that is just, what's the evidence? Is it working? If I'd seen it work, I'd recommend it. I can't recommend it. It's not my experience. I think if you've got a problem with a particular substance, you need to be in a room with people who have problems with that substance to recover. A lot of people are giving themselves a hard time because they should have known. Yeah, well, we all should have known more before we did, you know? It's like it takes you however many days it takes to get to to get to here. A lot of people are trying to deal with it through prayer and meditation. This is a spiritual program. Therefore, I will pray and meditate to the point where the food will be lifted. <laughs> My experience is that prayer and meditation is real essential to this process. And my experience is also that God does not come down and fix breakfast for people. <laughs> that you have to do the full work, you know? And that's the good news. You think I'm giving you the bad news. I'm giving you the good news. A lot of people in AA have trouble with OA because, don't tell me, it's a day at a time I know you mean for the rest of my life. <laughs> you know what? I don't mean for the rest of your life. I do mean a day at a time. It is only a day at a time. It is a daily reprieve. And that doesn't change no matter what the substance is. And it's a lot easier to do it a day at a time. You know, if you say if you say to somebody who walks into an OA meeting, you can never eat another hot fudge Sunday, they're going to be out the door in five seconds. <laughs> but, you know, if you say to them, are you willing to not eat one today? Can you get through till tonight without one? People tell me it's their last comfort. It's their last comfort. I want to say to you, are you comfortable? <laughs> Who had cancer, who had Hodgkin's disease, and she used to say to me, 
You know, Lynn, I would give anything to be able to go to a meeting every day and put this disease in remission and know that I was going to live the rest of my life. You know, and I never forget that. I never forget that. That I have the choice today. That I have a way to live and to be happy, joyous, and free. I believe that the promises that are in the big book are supposed to come true for people. And I believe they're supposed to come true around the food, too. I want to say to you, trust your intuition about what you've heard today. It's like, beyond what your head says, what hit here? Whatever you want, you know, it's like, take what you like and leave the rest. If you don't like me, if you don't like what I said, if you don't like the information, it doesn't make any difference at all. Just trust what's happening to you on an internal level in being in this room. Because I really do believe nobody's in any place by accident. 